I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome back to the Lantern Rouge Cycling Podcast. My name is Benji and today is a bit of a different day. Unfortunately, I'm alone today and that's because Lantern Rouge is unable to be here due to a personal emergency. I'm improvising a bit. I'm going to try and lead this one myself and let's hope you enjoyed as much as when we were both here, but I can't wait to have him back on the pod, I can tell you that. In today's podcast, we've got three topics I'd like to venture into. First of all, the Big Bang Tour, then the Flesh Wallon race that happened today, and last but not least, an interesting topic regarding CCC and its future, because a team has stepped in and bought their license of World Tour, which means that CCC is unfortunately folding. So let's dive into that after the two races, though. First of all, the Big Bang Tour. Some weird news yesterday evening. We had a announcement by the Dutch government two days ago, I think, in the evening, by Prime Minister Rutte, I think his name is. And he was talking about the fact that there cannot be public anymore as one of the corona measures that they add onto it. And there can't be public at sports events. And the Big Bang Tour cannot do that. They've got a second stage that was supposed to happen today, a time trial in Vlissingen after yesterday's stage won by Jasper Philipsen in Belgium. So in the Netherlands, that time trial, there's going to be public. So they had to cancel that stage, but the effects weren't really encapsulated to only that stage because in the second stage, we're supposed to start in the Netherlands and the third stage was a whole stage in the Netherlands as well. Now, regarding today's stage, they did not find a solution for that, unfortunately, but understandable because they only heard it yesterday evening. And because of that, well, they can't really find a solution for a new race in one evening. That would be a record. And I don't think they had a B plan for this second stage, but they were honestly quite amazingly fast at finding solutions for stage three and stage four because the time trial's gone on stage two. We've got stage three that usually was about to start in the Netherlands and finish an altar. That stage was supposed to end in a circuit of three times around altar. And they're going to just change it, starting an altar and finishing an altar. And they're going to have seven laps instead of three. So it's most likely still going to be a mass sprint as we expected it to be the first time around. But yeah, I expect the public is going to be closer together in altar now. So it's a bit counter-effective when it comes to the corona measures of the Netherlands towards Belgium. But well, it's not my area to judge. I'm not an expert in it. So I've got my personal opinion on it. I feel like COVID is an issue that is above the sport right now. So I am not against any measures that are taken if it can save lives. Regarding stage four, that was the hill stage that was supposed to be written in the Netherlands as well. In Sittardgelen with the Kalberg and such. That one is cancelled, as I said before, but they found a solution. It's not a similar parkour, but it's a similar parkour than the stage that was supposed to be written today. They're going to have a time trial on Friday instead. So it's very changing. We've got a flat stage tomorrow, altar to altar. The day after, the time trial in Rimsten, Belgium. And the last stage will stay the same as it is 
and we'll finish on the Mur von Gerardsbergen, or at least the middle part of it. And yeah, the race stays the same, really. We do have some changes that Van der Poel might not be able to take as much time because stage four was ideal for him, but stage five as well. So on paper, GC favorites stay the same. The only difference is that stage four will be won by a time trialist then. So Stefan Kung and so forth will be on the line there. For tomorrow, Mass Sprint, again, the same favorites as usual. Jasper Philipson could do it again, honestly, but I personally believe it might be someone else tomorrow. Arkhamon will win the victory, and I don't think he's going to step out of this Bing Bang Tour without one. Merlier, a bit disappointing on the first stage, but maybe could strike on this one. Peterson came second on the first stage. He's going to be looking more at AGC. From Friday onwards, with the time trial, I mean, Peterson will probably be fighting there together with Søren Kralnersen, Van der Poel, and so forth for the all-out lead. And on Saturday, they're going to be fighting on that goal stage for that. So for me, GC favorites stay the same. Now, this might actually snowball effect into the rest of the season, which is the unfortunate part. We've got the fact that Amstel Gold Race is coming up, and it looks like that is within the three-week period that these measures are held for. So it looks like the Amstel Gold Race has a similar issue. I heard, it's a rumor, that they are currently looking at doing a bit of a circuit race instead, going over the Bemelenberg, the Hülhemmerberg, and the Kauberg. So we'll see what actually sticks from that. It's a rumor so far, no confirmations yet, so you won't see me diving into uh, potential rumors yet here. Anyway, to a race that actually happened today, La Flèche Wallonne, we've got a parkour that, yeah, we spoke about it in the preview. It's usually ridden only in the last two kilometers, and today was the same. It looked like it might have had an upset, though, beforehand, because one rider from the breakaway actually held on quite long. So we had a breakaway at the start of the day. Quite a few riders, but the most notable names were Matthijs Paschens, a guy from Wallonie-Bruxelles, and we also had the rider of the Koenig Quickstep, Mauri van Sevenans. The thing about Mauri van Sevenans, he actually has quite a history, and this man was pretty good in the U23 circuit last year. He won Valda Ostefarokol correctly, sixth in Tour de Lovenir, if my mind is correct. And because of that, the Koenig Quickstep signed him from July or June onwards this season, and therefore he's now in their team. And performing quite well, was pretty good at the Belgian Championships. Did not make the first group, I think, but he did certainly do some damage in the peloton before that group actually got clear. Now today, he was in the breakaway, and he slotted everybody in the breakaway except for Baskins, who held on quite long, and with about a good 12 kilometers to go on the uh, Côte de Chemin de Guesse, 1.6 kilometers, 6.3% that she launched an attack from Baskins and got away. Now you got to keep in mind, this was the second to last climb. The stage, this race ends on the Mudewi, which is known for being 25% max. 11.3%, I think, average, and also the fact that it's one kilometer long. So it is very steep, and it is a solid kilometer, and it feels like the road never ends, but the most important part towards this climb is what I said yesterday. We've got a lot of corners in this, and from the corners alone, you can see whether someone is launching too early or not. There is this left hand with about 300 meters to go, that is usually where the riders actually launch, which is just past the steepest part. 
and that allows the punchers that have an extra kick. So the likes of, well, Alaphilippe and Valverde lost yes to have something left and actually finish it off on the section after that corner, which flattens out a bit more towards the top, but it stays deep, man. It stays deep. Now, as I said, we had that man going clear, Mauri von Sevenant. He had a good 45 seconds to 50 seconds after that second to last climb. That's with 10 kilometers to go. So you'd think that's enough. But the memory of me is that Jungels had 30 seconds once on the move on Hui. And he went on that and lost those 30 seconds in no time. So you need about a minute to survival on the move on Hui. But the issue here is that he never even made it to that climb. And that is because he had a chaser, Rigoberto Uran. He was chasing him on about 20 seconds. He launched from the peloton to Mauri van Sevenant. And in a downhill section, Mauri van Sevenant actually fell. He uh, landed in a bush on the side of the road. Nobody really saw the crash. There was no real footage of it. But unfortunately, that did happen. And therefore, he was in the group with Uran suddenly. And then Uran and Mauri van Sevenant got caught just before the climb. Do I think that Von Sevenant could have made it if he didn't crash? It would have been really hard. It would have been much more stressful for the teams behind and for himself probably and for the viewer, but I don't think he would have made it, honestly. At the bottom of the motorway, we saw some people move up. Bagioli was being lifted towards the front by Devenines, and we also saw Woods up there, Hirschi, Kwiatkowski, Dan Martin, Pogacar being lifted towards the front as well by his teammate, and now Yellow von Endert was there as well. We also saw Wellens at the back of the group. Dylan turns as well. So those people were not looking too bright for this stage. But generally, the strongest people look to be up front. Benoit Cosnefroy in there as well. And the action really started when, as I said, that corner happened. In that corner, we saw Woods moving up. Woods being the first in that group then. And putting a bit of a heavy pace. Trying to up that pace more and more towards the top. And in that corner itself, he made the real move. Hirschi was able to follow the wheel quite well, but the likes of Pogacar were really unable to and fell through the group quite easily. I think Pogi ended up on a solid ninth place, which is not bad because there's not a lot of GC riders that can actually perform well here. After Pogi was off the back pretty much, Woods was still up front, but Hirschi really trying to follow Kwiatkowski in the wheel. We had Kosnefroy in there as well. Martin in fifth position, really. But... The moment it starts flattening out towards the top is where Hirschi decided to make a move and launch past Woods on the left, which is the moment where Valvare usually did it in the past, I think, and Philippe as well. Those two battles are often fought at that moment. Hirschi went on the left of the road, Woods still on the right, and basically everyone else lost the wheel of Hirschi. After a wonderful season so far, did it once again. He won Flesh Wallon in quite a magical fashion, quite easy to be honest. He had a solid gap on the second pass in which was not Woods. He got overtaken by the man, the myth, the legend, Benoit Cosnefois, the man we've been speaking about a lot in the Tour de France by the fact that he couldn't actually win KOMs properly. And today he ends up second on the Mudehui. So we mentioned him a bit yesterday. We thought he could actually do something. Alar pretty much cancelled that idea, but I still believed in Cosnefois, but... I did not expect him to get second, I can tell you that. He beat the likes of Woods and also Bargill getting in fourth there. And I think that Dan Martin ended fifth just ahead of Kwiatkowski. So a solid top six. I think Kwiatkowski was the favorite of 
LR, Lantern Rouge, and myself, it was Dylan Turns, but that man was off the bag before we even started. So, yeah, that didn't happen. But Mark Hirschi, once again, where do I think this will go? I think he might be a real contender for LBL as well, but I don't actually see him riding it, according to the upcoming participations. But that might definitely change looking at the form he's in if Sunweb chooses wisely, because you got to send this man to LBL and to... Amstel gold if it gets ridden, let's be honest, because he's worth gold at the moment, and if you put him in hill races, this is a, a puncher, a real puncher that also has the additional ability of doing well when it comes to the climbing, so I would dare to try and put him as leader in the likes of Catalonia next year. Catalonia usually has hilly stages and one mountain stage usually, so he could really fit there and he could really do well in GC as well, so I definitely tried it out if I was Sunweb. This is such a talent. It doesn't stop. Additionally to the men's race, we also had a women's version of La Flèche Wallonne. I like that because, as Lantern Rouge says a lot in these podcasts recently, you've got the fact that in women's cycling, I feel like the top races change a lot and the names are usually sponsors as well sometimes, so it gets hard for people that try and follow it as people that dive into it for the first year or something, and then the next year everything changes. So it gets really hard to follow and keep track of what races are, what level in women's cycling to me personally. It can use the same infrastructure as the men's race is doing. So races like this could probably be beneficial for the future if other races like... Detroit Flanders does it already, I think, and Wevelgem as well. So... If more one-day races could try and find a way to organize women's cycling as well, maybe on the same day, maybe the day after, using the same infrastructure, then it's going to be cheaper to do. Regarding the race itself, we had a finish on Mudehui as well. Same parkour in the last two kilometers, to be honest. Multiple times Mudehui, and the same second to last time as well, the Côte de Chemin de Guse. Now, the length of these stages was 124 kilometers. Usually, I would complain a tiny bit because I feel like women's races are sometimes a bit too short and it doesn't deserve to be that short i feel like they deserve to have a longer race as well not that i uh want to wish a harder race to every women's cyclist but i've got the feeling that they are wishing for that as well themselves from what i hear on twitter and social media as a consequence i have a bit of the same opinion a good example of that is the fact that paris Bay is going to be ridden to this year for women as well and it is 114 kilometers, something like that, 112 kilometers. It's relatively short. And because of that, they are unable to get the Arambetic section on the cobbles in that route. Now, it could be that it's due to the COVID environment and season that it's quite hard to organize a bigger race for the first paris Bay edition for women cyclists. But I... I do want more next year, gotta be honest, and I hope that they can find a way to find that legendary part of Paris-Roubaix in that race as well, because I was slightly disappointed it was not in. But again, flesh well on, I, I get so off topic without Lantern Rouge here, it's crazy. Well, it was very similar to the men's race, to be honest. The action mainly happened on the last spot, and we had no real rough attacks before that. The pre-race favorite was, yeah, as usual in these Women's races since the unfortunate accident of Van Vleuten, Anna van der Breggen. And 
she was really strong at the World Championships, and pretty much the same people that were strong at the World Championships were also strong today. Van der Breggen being one of the favorites, and Bulls Dolmans really taking control in the race itself, together with Trexiga Fredo, who have Elizabeth Dagnan and also Elisa Longo-Borghini. We also saw Molman Passio on the pre-race favorites, Mariana Vos, Leona Leppard, Michaela Harvey, and so forth. Cecilia Utrup-Ludwig, we spoke about her yesterday as well, for FDG as being a potential favorite here due to the fact that it looks a lot like Giro di Emilia, which she really did well in and actually won in the end. So we had a feeling that she would be up there as well. Today's race, very similar to the men's race, honestly, was written plainly on the last climbing section. Potentially teams that are not in Van der Breggen's team should have tried to open up the race a bit earlier, but it just didn't really happen. So... We had Bulls Dolmans and Trek Segafredo leading into the Mudehui and bringing the rest of the riders basically with them. Niwadoma also there for Canyon Sram, didn't mention her yet. And she was near the front when Mudehui started, but she really quickly started to fall through together with Mariana Vosliana Lippard. And the people that were left were basically Van der Breggen, who was storming at the front of the group, just pedaling her own time trial up the Mudehui. And she didn't really look at anybody else. There was one person that actually came past Van der Breggen on that middle section. That was Demi Vollering for Park Hotel Valkenburg. I did not really have her in my top three here today because, yeah, she was not up there for me. She was not on my radar for this one. The other riders that were able to follow Van der Breggen were Longoborghini in the wheel. We also had Cecilie Utrup-Ludwig, obviously, also in the wheel. She had a bit of a, an odd thing happen in the stage itself. She had a mechanical... And in the return of that, about 20 kilometers from the line, I think, it was pretty close to the finish line. So it's good that she was still in contention after spending that energy. She came back to the peloton with a bit of a sticky bottle. She tried to do that, at least, with the car. So she passed her own team car, FDJ team car, and tried to do a sticky bottle. For people that don't know what that is, the um, DS that is at the steer gives a bit of a bottle to the rider, pretends to just give it and then subtly pushes the car into a higher gear and starts driving like crazy and gives a bit of a boost to the rider. Obviously, exaggerate a bit, but they try to give a bit of a boost to the rider that is holding on to the bottle, which means that, yeah, the sticky bottle, it's like she's stuck to the bottle. Now, this sticky bottle failed. <laughs> it was quite funny to see. I think they didn't realize that there was a car ahead of them because they tried to do a sticky bottle with about a meter to the next car, so... Obviously, they're not going to have too much of a bonus for that. And I think Utrup Ludwig wanted a bit more of a bonus and she actually got angry. It looked like she was pulling the car, which is the opposite of what it's supposed to look like. And she got angry and just took the bottle and threw it at the car. So I think she uh, she got a bit aggressive there, but maybe it's a frustration of having the mechanical and such. I do want to talk about what happens towards the end of the stage more, which is the fact that she was in the wheel of Van der Breggen together with Longo Borghini, together with Voring. Voring came past Van der Breggen with about, well, right at that corner section I spoke about a few times already. That is where Van der Breggen started to launch a bit more, and we quickly saw the cracks in the people that were following. Longo Borghini being the first to suffer, actually being taken back by her teammate, Dagnan, a bit later, and she didn't even end up beating her teammate. So, as I said, it looked like they were riding a bit against each other instead of with each other, which often leads to the two riders not getting the result they hoped for. 
Now, Trebot is still in contention. Van der Breggen, Ludwig, and Volering. Volering still next to Van der Breggen. Ludwig still trying to follow Van der Breggen, but so I think Van der Breggen was like, oh shit, let's try and up the tempo a bit. Flew past her again. The only person that was able to follow was Ludwig, and she followed quite well, so I was curious whether she could actually take over Van der Breggen, but unfortunately for Ludwig, that was not the case. Van der Breggen wins her sixth, Murahui, La Flèche Wallon, and Ludwig comes in second, just ahead of Demi Vollering. The differences between Van der Breggen and her competition over the last six editions, though, has changed a bit. I think six years ago, she had like 16 seconds. I think four years ago, she had like 18 seconds as well, so... The gaps in the past were a lot higher than it is right now. I think last year, one second as well on Von Vleuten. So, yeah, the differences aren't what they used to be. On paper, she still has an opportunity to make this a 7-4 next year because that is going to be the last year she rides as a female cyclist. Then she goes into a DS role, a director of sportive of one of the teams. I think of her team at Bulls Dolman. So, that's pretty... Uh, Pretty sad news that she's leaving, but also good news that she's not leaving the sport in itself. All in all, both good races, men and women's race, but once again, mainly decided in the last 1.4 kilometers. So basically every year that Flesh Wallon is on the TV, just pop it up when it's about 1,500 meters to go, because there's about a 99% chance that nothing has happened beforehand. I think that's about all I can uh, dive into regarding Flesh Wallon. I'm not used to doing this alone, but I tried my best, so hopefully you guys enjoy this as well in a bit of a monologue session instead of a dialogue. We'll try and dive into dialogues again ASAP, though. The last topic I want to venture into is the fact that CCC has no future anymore, or a different future. How can I say it properly? In general, in cycling, how does this work? We've got the UCI that gives licenses for teams to be in World Tour. Now, in the past, CCC was BMC. They changed the title sponsor, but the team itself behind that, the whole infrastructure behind the name stayed the same. That infrastructure was called Continuum Sports, which is the company behind the team, is what you can see it like. And that team company, Continuum Sports, received a license for World Tour I think until 2022, but I'm not sure about that. Could be 21 as well. Now, because CCC does not have the funding for next year and they decided that they most likely won't have it, the UCI has been asking the top pro Conti teams whether they have the finances and the willingness to become a World Tour team next season. They did it with Alpes and Phoenix, the uh, brothers Rothhoff, which are the two people that are leading that team said no this is too early for us and decided not to go for it a team that did go for it is Circus Wanti Hubert Tormans cycling team the pro continental team with the likes of Meurice, Van Poppel and his brother Jan Bakelans, Lammertink, Petilli so many people but not the top cyclists that team is going to be on world tour next year this means that CCC has sold its license to that team. The Continuum Sports Company sold that license at least, so CCC steps out of the sport as sponsor. Continuum Sports has no license anymore, so they are not going to be, uh, quite simply, in cycling anymore. 
The imminent issue you see then is the fact that Wanty Hubert does not have a Walter team currently. For 2021, their current lineup exists of a solid 14 riders. The best riders of that being M8 against Christian Odd Eiking. We've got, as I said before, the Van Poppel brothers. Rein Tarame has a new signing. Rota as well. Loic Vliegen, a solid rider as well. So in general, not really what you would expect to be a World Tour team. Basically, a Pro Conti team at the moment. The good news there is that their sponsors, Circus, Wanty Hubert and Tormans, have decided to up their financial input in the team so that the team can get extra better riders for next season. So what I decided to do is take a look at which riders that don't have a contract are potential praise for this team because I looked at the nationalities they want when it comes to the companies that sponsor them. I looked at the, the nationalities they have because usually teams try to extend on that so that the people that join the team also have people to talk to. Quite important, you know? And there's quite a few interesting riders still on the... Uh, on the market, Van Marke, Kirkleider, Rulans, Pauls, Wallais, Van Kersburg, Stein van den Berg, all Belgians still on the free market for next season. And I would find it really amazing if Van Marke would go to this team. Personally, he would not have the support that he has at the current team, but I also think it wouldn't be too much worse. If Education First doesn't even have a confirmed future yet, Definitely not financially. I think it's confirmed that they're going to be riding next season, but looking at the people they extend when it comes to contracts, it's not looking too bright. I think Rigoberto Urana and Betiol and so forth all have not signed yet. So I'm curious what's going to happen at EF, but for now that means that Van Mark is out of contract and could potentially sign for Wanty Group Hubert. Dutch people, Langevel could actually end up there as well, also from EF, also hasn't signed yet. NTT just announced that their main title sponsor is not going to be supporting the team anymore next season. So they either have to find a sponsor extremely quickly or the team will have issues as well for their UCI license. They've got a deadline that they have to hold themselves to. And because of that, Bosenhagen, Mikkel Valgren, Nidzolo, those riders are all for the taking for next season if that actually happens. I do think that Nidzolo is probably financially overrated not physically not the performance overrated because he has won quite well in the european championships he's had other races won as well this season he unfortunately didn't have a great tour de france due to the crashes in stage one but all in all i do think that the european championships makes him able to ask more money to teams and because of that he might be less of a target for a team like wanty who might not have the financial capabilities to battle it out with the top World Tour teams yet. So that's why Nizolo is a bit of a question mark for me for potential Wanty Prey. Mareshko coming from CCC, we said it earlier, team will fold. So yeah, Mareshko could be a solid signing. I'm curious if there's going to be anything else happening to Wanty Hirup Hubert regarding potentially taking on cyclists from CCC as a part of the deal. I don't know if that's a thing. I generally don't know, but I guess we'll find out pretty soon. And the last rider I had on my shortlist was Sylvain Delier. Has not re-signed yet with Ajazer La Mondial, even though that team is really fighting forward on Classics riders. They are looking really good, and it's even rumored that Lopez will be joining Ajazer. Not for the Classics, obviously, but as a new GC leader. They're going to need one. 
they were initially planning to do 2021 just for classics and then grow out for GC the year after. But if they can get Lopez, then that idea is certainly changing. Anyway, what's your opinion on Wanty Group Kuber being in World Tour? What do you think they will add to World Tour? And do you think that they will play a role next year? Or does that depend solely on the transfers that they're going to be getting in the next couple of months? Because we've still got a solid transfer period coming up. I think a solid 250 World Tour and Pro Continental riders still out of contract. So I want to thank you for listening today. It was a bit of a different concept being just me. But I hope you still enjoyed it. It uh, was a bit harder for me. Usually I can dive into the opinion that Lantern gives and kind of construct my own opinion towards that. But today I had to do a pretty much alone. I hope that Lantern can be here tomorrow. The um, thing that happened to him is obviously private, so I don't want to dive into it on the podcast. But in general, it's pretty rough on him, so I hope that he can be there uh, tomorrow. I can't add too much more than that at this very moment. But in the end, thank you very much for listening. Thanks for all the support we've been having recently. Ciao.